This is Trinity Western University's Chapel Podcast, where our daily chapel gatherings are captured and shared for the TWU community. Whatever your day looks like today, we're glad you're tuning in. It's great to be here. I've been to Trinity uh, Western before. It's a wonderful place to come and visit. I had a great time this morning. I got up. I'm on Colorado time. I'm from California, but I happened to be visiting my kids and grandkids in Colorado when this uh, came up, and so I flew from there. So I was an hour early uh, waking up, and I thought, wow, okay. So I got up about 6 o'clock, and I'm kind of rattling around in there, and I thought, well, I'll go over to the cafeteria like 7.45 or something like that, and uh, I walked in and there was no one there. And I had this terrible feeling, you know, the rapture happened and I didn't get the email. <laughs> Not the first time Verizon has caused me to go through the tribulation. So I, you know, I'm walking around going, wow, what is this? You know, but Rob assured me, no, it's no problem, Rick. There was no rapture. All that happens, all the students get up at seven o'clock, have breakfast, and they go have their personal devotions. And by eight, they're joining together to pray for the chapel speaker. So I'm just feeling really warmed by the uh, love and attention that you've already given me. This is a great thing. It's also fun to see all the banners you have here. Looks like your sports teams are doing well. I'm assuming you have double banners, one in English, one in French. So I've got to probably reduce those by half, but I can't read them from here anyhow. So anyhow, it's fun to be here. It, uh, this is a great place. This is one of the places that my daughter looked at. So my first time coming to Trinity Western was actually to bring her up here in 2003 or 2004 when she was looking at going to college. And um, boy, what a wonderful place. So that said, let me just talk a little bit about, as Rob mentioned, this book that I recently wrote called Winsome Persuasion. Um, just a couple of personal reflections on this. Let me talk just a second about why I wrote a book and then why I'm also in the midst of writing another book. So in terms of why I wrote this book, I was looking around and I basically discovered uh, that public discourse in America was, was broken. It wasn't working. People were not talking to each other, they weren't hearing each other, and I began to despair somewhere about this. And so I talked to a friend of mine, Tim Yulhoff, who's one of the professors in communication studies at Biola, and we had done a bunch of things together over the course of time, but we decided, hey, this would be a good thing to, to address, and particularly the issue of not just the broad public discourse, but the Christian voice in that public discourse, and how it doesn't seem to be functioning in any positive redeeming fashion. In fact, in some ways, it seems like Christians have made the conversation worse. So we wrote this book and I, uh, you know, talked about it. We, you know, do all kinds of different things with this. And I happened to be doing a men's retreat about this. And uh, I was sitting at a table afterwards. There was about 100 men there. And it was a really interesting church. They did a great job being intergenerational. So they had people who were significantly older than I am. They had a bunch of people who were uh, probably a lot closer to your age and everybody in between. And I'm sitting there chatting with a guy afterwards, uh, kind of at a, at a dinner break. And he said, yeah, you know, all this stuff about how do we communicate with the non-Christian world and the tensions there. He says, that's really valuable. He said, let me tell you. The problem's just as bad in the pew. And he says, I sit beside people who have all those same beliefs that bother me so much that I see in the non-Christian world, but I feel like they're in the church today. And that got me thinking that it's really true, and there's some really unique challenges that come not only with communicating Christian values to the non-Christian world, 
but also living with conflicting convictions within the church. And so that's the project I'm working on now is how do we address that? And let me just make a quick observation. In both cases, the problem is really similar. And that is when we listen to other people, we fail to practice what you might call a hermeneutic of charity. In other words, that we listen to people in love, that we believe the best of what we're hearing and who we're hearing it from. That's a hermeneutic of charity, and we fail to practice that when we listen. The other thing we fail to do is when we speak, we fail to practice a rhetoric of wisdom. We don't speak wisely. We think if we speak the truth, we don't need to worry about speaking the truth in love. And I think those two mistakes have destroyed Christian witness, both in the outside world and also made life within the body of Christ much more problematic. So that's the thing that drove me to do some thinking about this. This is the thing I've kind of gotten to late in life. I was a chemistry major as an undergraduate. What the heck? How did that happen? Um, so I have gone through that. I have a PhD in philosophy. I was a pastor for 20 years in a free church. So I've got this really weird hodgepodge of a, of a mixture of things in my background. It's what we might call academic drunk driving. Uh, but it ended up being a wonderful convergence for me because right now I deal with the Office of Faith and Learning. That's my primary job at Biola, and so I'm constantly dealing with faculty from all across the, the university trying to think, through, what does the gospel really mean about this particular area? And this has become a chance for me to do that in the area of, of public rhetoric and public discourse and say, what does the gospel really have to offer with that? So with that by background, let me just talk a little bit about this um, problem that I mentioned um, regarding the issue of our, our you know, public discourse. Um, broken public discourse, why is it that that's become so problematic? The bottom line is that we have an enormous amount of polarization. That would be the easiest way to understand it. Let me just give a, a little bit of a flavor for what that looks like. Um, Sam, Sean Westwood is a professor at Dartmouth, and uh, he's a political science guy, and he did some studying about this issue, and he discovered that politically partisan people discriminate those against those on the opposite side of the party divide to a degree that exceeds the discrimination based on race. So in other words, for all the problems we talk about with race, there's a greater level of animosity right now towards people who are from the other side of the political divide. And this is not only in the United States. A similar study was done in the US, comparing US, UK, Belgium, and Spain in 2017, and basically confirmed the same thing, that those who identify strongly with political ideology discriminate against their opponents to a degree that exceeds discrimination against members of religious, linguistic, ethnic, or regional outgroups. We have an extremely polarized political discourse. Believe it or not, it's even true in Canada. I know you guys are famously polite, but a recent study done in Ottawa discovered that Canadians say, a quarter of Canadians say they hate their political opponents. The person who did the study commented this and said, the moderate middle has largely disappeared. Increasingly, political rhetoric is used to incite rage against opponents and fear of electing the other party. That's the way we tend to talk. Now, here's a great puzzle. Um, if you were to do a little research on this, you discover that people are blazingly ignorant of the position of the opposite political party. 
In fact, they're pretty stunningly ignorant of their own party, but don't tell anybody that. We're amazingly uninformed, yet at the same time, we're flamingly upset with one another. How in the world do you put those two things together? Well, scholars love to study things like this and come up with cool, multisyllabic phrases to refer to them, so let me float this one by you. It's motivational attribution asymmetry. Doesn't this roll off the tongue? I mean, you might just want to memorize that and just drop that like on somebody at lunch. They'll be really impressed. Motivational attribution asymmetry. What does that mean? Very simple. It means when I think of your motivations, I attribute to you a set of motivations that is completely asymmetrical, completely different to the motives I attribute to myself. Why do I hold my opinions? Because I'm loving, reasonable, fair-minded, and respectful. Why do you hold your opinions? Because you're ignorant, foolish, evil, and disrespectful. That's motivational attribution asymmetry. And guess what? That happens at a level, this is a study done in the US, so between the Republicans and Democrats, the motivational attribution asymmetry is basically the same as it is between Palestinians and Israelis. They've been doing this for 3,000 years. And yet right now the level of animosity and misattribution of motives is as deep as it is apparently in the Middle East. That's the world that we live in. So my thought about this is how do we go about making peace? Now let me just give you a quick hint. Well, before I do this, let me do this. Let me show you, I got to think about the importance of saying let's make peace. So I looked up on Google images of peacemaker. The first images that came up, a pistol. This is a pistol made by uh, Colt. I think the Colt peacemaker that helped, uh, you know, the, the uh, cowboys use this in, uh, the, in the Wild West. And I, I looked at it, I laughed when I saw this. I thought, okay, well, I better find some different way to, to search the word. But then I got to thinking about that, that there's something actually rather symbolic about the fact that we would name a weapon designed to kill people a peacemaker. In fact, that, that might be what comes to mind when you hear Jesus say, blessed are the peacemakers, when you think of a guy with a couple of six-shooters. And I'm like, wow, but notice what's going on in the back of your mind to make that analogy. Basically, the insight is, how do you make peace? By eliminating the opposition. This is not about compromise, this is not about harming, this is not about coming together, but somehow it's about silencing the other side. That runs pretty deep, apparently, at least, according to Google. Now, let me offer a different vision of what peacemaking might look like. Um, Jay, and you can give me the next slide there. This is, uh, that was the sort of picture I had in my mind when I thought of peacemaking. Two people sitting down over coffee, hey, let's talk it out and figure out what we have in common. Let me just read a passage from James that I think articulates this very nicely. James is talking about in contrasting things with, with uh, what he calls worldly or earthly wisdom, uh, the wisdom that doesn't come down from above, in other words. And he says, in contrast to this, divine wisdom, the wisdom from above, is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. 
and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And this would be the biblical vision of making peace. Um, it's a thing that those who are wise in the wisdom of God, the wisdom that comes from above, are able to do. So this is the thing that, that motivates me, but unfortunately it appears that Christians aren't known for actually manifesting that. So let me just take a look at a little bit of findings about people's response to and perception of Christians. The uh, large survey was done that asked people, is Christianity, is the gospel, um, a voice for good? Does it serve good purposes? This is a large international survey, 18,000 people surveyed in 23 countries. The results were 52% answered no. Christianity is not a force. Religion is not a force for good. Um, tragically, the European countries, what we sometimes call Christian or else post-Christian countries, were the ones with the most negative views. Belgium, only 21% said that Christianity was a force for the good. Um, France, 24, Great Britain, 29, Sweden, 19%. Basically, over two-thirds in all these European countries are saying, no, religion is not a force for the good. Here's the second slide. Um, what counts as religious extremism? Now, this is really interesting. Now, you got everything up here at once. Um, it would have been nice if we could have had these come up one at a time because I need to explain just a little bit about how this slide goes because it's really revealing about the perception of Christianity. So if you look on the left of each set of three, the dark blue column is the attitude or the perception of evangelicals about a statement. The light blue one is the attitude or perception of skeptics. So they take people who are religious believers by self-attestation, and then you get people who are skeptics. The people who just say, hey, I completely disbelieve. So you're assuming those two will be wildly different from one another on many things, right? And then the interesting question was, what do we do with the third group? And the third group are, in effect, all the rest of the average American adults. The big middle group. Now, you probably can't read these things that they're assessing, so let me read them for you. Number one, what counts as a religious extremism? One possibility is the, to say attempting to convert others to one's religious viewpoint. So evangelism, proselytizing. You'll notice that Christians, about 10% of Christians say that counts as extremism. 83% of skeptics say that counts as extremism. Probably not surprising, right? But what's interesting to note is that 60% of all the rest of the people say that would be religious extremism. The next one, teaching children that same-sex relations are morally wrong. About 1% of Christians said that was religious extremism, 76% of skeptics, but 55% of the broader population said that was morally, it was religiously extreme to teach children that same-sex relations are wrong. There were very similar ones statistics for simply believing that, whether you're teaching it to children or not. Protesting a government policy that conflicts with your religion. 15% of Christians think that might be extreme. 60% of skeptics and 51% of the broader population thinks speaking up for some public policy based on your religion would be an example of extremism. Quitting a job to pursue work as a missionary. You can see that's pretty big. Waiting to have waiting until marriage to have sex. 
5% of Christians think that would count as religious extremism, 34% of skeptics, and 24% of the broader population think that would be religiously extreme to wait until marriage to have sex. That's where, and you're, you'll be happy to know that tithing zero, all you who are planning on becoming pastors or Christian workers, 0% of the Christians thought tithing was religious extreme, and only 13% of the atheists, 11% um, skeptics. So that part we're doing pretty good on. But this is an amazing statistic because here's what it shows you is that right now when Christians speak, speak in the public square, we are the away team. We are the people who no one begins on our side. In 1979, Jerry Falwell founded a movement called the Moral Majority because he was thinking that the vast majority of people actually shared Christian morality. At the time, that was true. Fast forward 40 years, and that is absolutely not true. We are actually the immoral minority. That's the world in which we live and speak. So how do we speak to that kind of a world? That is obviously the question of concern for me. So uh, if you look at the next slide, you'll see a note that uh, we have, what we need to understand of ourselves is we're a counter public. I won't take the time to define that. That's kind of a technical term in, in, uh, in comm studies kinds of things. But the bottom line is that means we're the, in effect, we're the away team. So let me think just a little bit about what our possible responses uh, to this could be. Why don't you pop up the next slide for me? Um, and let me suggest that what we have done is we've had a very, very shallow view of our rhetorical options. We have tended to think that we need to declare the truth and let the chips fall where they may. And I'd like to suggest the thing that would be very helpful for us would be to just take a little bit of time to uh, learn rhetoric from the Holy Spirit. And let me suggest that the Holy Spirit has different sort of voices in which he speaks to us. He adopts different rhetorical postures. So the Holy Spirit does indeed sometimes pro practice what you might call the prophetic posture, where he declares the truth and asks us to repent and follow and respond to that. That is the thing that you see the Holy Spirit doing. You think of John 16, 8, where he talks about the Holy Spirit came to convict the world concerning truth and righteousness and judgment and things like that. So it's clearly a prophetic thing. He's trying to convict us concerning those sorts of notions. So that is certainly a thing that the Holy Spirit does. But I'd like to point out that the Holy Spirit also has a pastoral voice. So for example, in uh, actually interestingly enough, in the rest of that uh, upper room discourse when Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit, um, he tends to talk about the Holy Spirit playing the role of the one who comforts us and comes alongside us. He speaks words of peace to us in moments of our anxiety, who basically is meeting us where we're not at and caring for our needs. The Spirit serves that, vo that role in our lives, and when we hear the voice of the Spirit in that sense, we hear it in a caring pastoral fashion, not in a confronting prophetic fashion. And then finally, you have the Holy Spirit who is uh, operating with what I will call a persuasive voice. In other words, he's trying to lead us into all the truth, to borrow that phrase from, from John. He's trying to persuade us of certain things. He's going to be uh, restraining evil, moving the, the, the culture in a way that keeps that in check and allows others to, to come to the gospel. And the Spirit is quite happy to speak in any of those, depending upon what's appropriate. Here's my observation. What has tended to happen when we think of speaking to the broader public world is we tend to think we need to speak in a prophetic voice. And you know what happens when that voice doesn't work? We operate like ugly Americans. Let me, and I'll just own this as a thing that is commonly true of Americans. I've traveled a fair bit and I've seen it in action. 
You get an American in Paris, and they are in the hotel, and they can't find the dining room. So that they go to the person at the front desk and they say, where's the dining room? And they give one of those looks like, I have no idea what you're saying because you're saying it in English. And the American thinks the way to solve that is by saying it in English louder. Where is the dining room? Don't you understand plain English? And of course, the answer to that question is no, I don't. You're speaking in the wrong voice. And the only thing you can think of to solve that problem is to turn up the volume. And this, I think, is what has happened in a lot of our Christian political discourse. We speak a prophetic word. When people don't hear it, the only thing we can think of is how do we turn up the volume? And you know what? We become the ugly Christians. And my suggestion, and the thing I argue for in this book with Tim, is that we learn to speak in a persuasive voice. Uh, the interesting thing that I find most common in the generations of students that I'm teaching is they're happy to agree with me that the prophetic voice is bad news, but they want to replace it with the pastoral voice that just speaks words of love and acceptance. The only problem is, what if people are doing things that are extremely dangerous or destructive? Somehow we need to convey to them a word of warning. And we need to realize that there's another option for communication, that is that we speak persuasively to others. And I don't have time to develop this, but let me just give, plant the seeds of this, and we'll pick up on some of this when we, we speak about things tomorrow. Uh, go ahead and roll forward to the persuasive voice. Uh, come back one, this will do fine, this is where we'll leave things. Let me just talk about the persuasive voice as a forgotten alternative to kind of prophetic proclamation. Aristotle was really big on this issue, uh, on studying rhetoric. And one of his observations about the way you persuade people, basically it's a function of three things. Logos, pathos, and ethos. Logos is sort of the rational argument, the point that you're making. Pathos is your ability to move a person's emotions. And uh, ethos is in effect your character. And Aristotle's line of argument is where he said the most important thing in persuasion is actually your character. And the question is, how do we manifest Christian character in the context of speaking persuasively to a non-Christian world? That's the challenge that we face. Um, so I'll pick up, mention a few things about that next time, then we'll apply all of this to the increasingly difficult and interesting challenge of responding with Christian conviction within the church, because that can often be as polarized or sometimes interesting enough, even worse than the polarization that takes place within the non-Christian world. Interesting issue, we'll talk about that next time. Let me take a moment to pray and then I'll let you guys go on to the things you have next. Lord Jesus, I do pray for, um, for the Christian voice in the time and place you have put us. Um, it doesn't matter if these are the best of times or the worst of times, these are our times. These are the times to which you have called us. And Lord, you have given us a mission to not only speak your word, to, but to live it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to gain insight into how to do that effectively uh, in the world and in the situation and circumstances you've placed us. Give us the grace to be your mouthpiece to a word that desperately needs to hear your message. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. We hope that this message has challenged encouraged and inspired you as we continue learning and growing together in discipleship to Jesus. 
Every week, you'll find new chapel messages on our channel from local and international speakers ranging in diverse and engaging topics. So go ahead and subscribe for the latest of what's going on in chapel. Much love and happy listening.